Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand Studies channel of the New Books Network. Today we have a repeat author, Virginia Miller, Dr. Virginia Miller, who is a research fellow with the Centre for Public and Contextual Theology at Charles Sturt University in Canberra. She was on last time with a book on ecumenicalism and her research work includes church-focused policy research into sexual abuse of children, elder abuse, euthanasia, and religious freedom. My name is Bede Haynes. The book Virginia will be discussing today is called Child Sexual Abuse Inquiries and the Catholic Church Reassessing the Evidence. Uh, Good afternoon, Virginia. Hi. Thanks for inviting me on to talk again. I really appreciate it. No trouble. Now, could you, I think um, whenever someone sees a book about child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, there's a real, well, I imagine it's going to be a book that's going to explain how the church has failed, etc., etc. But your book is different. What is the aim of your book? As the title of the book says, Reassessing the Evidence, I wanted to take the findings from the major inquiries into child sex abuse in the Catholic Church and reevaluate them with an understanding of the mores of the time um, and child safety mechanisms that were put in place by the Catholic Church. Uh, I mean, I think the inquiries and the media representation has been somewhat unfair to the Catholic Church. A lot of safeguarding measures were put in place in the mid-90s, which appear to have been successful. Um, So that was the main intention of writing the book, giving a a different perspective, so to speak. And did you come to this project with any previous experience in dealing with this, um, well, I suppose it's often called the crisis, dealing with this crisis in in any um, academic sense? Well, I am a theologian and a biblical scholar, um, but in a narrow sense, no. My interest in this project was really a personal interest to begin with. I am a Catholic and I was disturbed by media reports and I felt that I needed to read the inquiries, the evidence in the inquiries, and come to my own conclusion about the state of the Catholic Church and whether I still felt happy being a member of the church, contributing money to the church. Um, So my motivation was largely personal to begin with. Mm. The book is published by Florence or Firenze University Press, not an Australian publisher. Is that, um, uh, was there any difficulty in having a book like this published at all? Because it, it takes what's, the, I suppose it's, a, it's not the common view taken about the, the Catholic Church sex and abuse inquiry. The normal line is, this is terrible. Damn them, damn them, damn them. Well, that's a very perceptive question. I did have a lot of difficulty finding a publisher for the book in Australia, North America, and some places in the UK. Um, I had some crazy uh, reviews of my book um, from publishers, uh, reviews that said I should watch more Netflix shows on child sex abuse. I had a editor tell me I was a horrible person. However, I have a friend who's an academic in uh, Europe and he suggested I try European uh, publishing houses because they're less ideologically motivated and um, truer, have a truer sense of academic freedom and, and not so inclined to censorship. Mm. One part of the book which I liked was it doesn't go into a lot of it talks about events, it talks about abuse, names, events, has lots of statistics in it, 
but it doesn't actually have a lot of of sort of uncomfortable detail of what happened to person X and what happened to person Y. So he wouldn't be reading this book to get salacious stories if that was what someone was after. It takes a very it does take a very academic and very it's almost like a meta analysis of all of this information. Correct. Is that the approach you wanted to take? Yeah, so I was more interested in looking at the bigger picture and, as you say, the megadata. Um, I was less interested in individual case studies, um, which most people are familiar with when they talk about child sex and abuse in the church. I was more interested in, uh, is this um, an isolated problem or is this a large and current widespread problem? So you're right, it was more concerned with... um, the bigger data rather than individual case studies. Mm. The book analyzes the there were I think there were three or four major inquiries in Ireland, and you looked at three of those. I think look yep. you looked at the John Jay inquiry in America and the Australian inquiry. Um, could you begin by explaining? the background to the Irish inquiries? So the Irish inquiries came to the fore largely due to victims' lobby groups uh, wanting some answers from the church, wanting these stories to be heard, and also, rightly so, wanting compensation for child sex abuse that they'd suffered. Um, And there was also a media drive which ultimately influenced the calling of the inquiry. Mm. I work as a as a a lawyer, and one of the I suppose it's become a cliche. It's called the pendulum swing, where the legal policy of a government might swing one way, and then when the public sentiment has changed, it swings almost entirely the other way, and it takes a while for there to be a balance in between. The in a country like Ireland. Was there a? Did you get a sense that the Irish people thought that there was now a time when they could almost this was almost used as a way in which to put the social what was often I suppose I said the social control or the social um, standing of the church behind them and to move forward into what might be described as a more secular society. Look, my my research. Um didn't find any answers to that question. I mean, I, I have heard stories that there was some suggestion that uh, around the same time as the inquiry in Ireland, uh, issues such as same-sex marriage were arising and there was an idea that, um, you know, the certain elements wanted the church to be undermined. I'm not sure if I agree with that. Um, uh because I think to, to, you know, to agree with that undermines that there, there was child sex abuse in the Catholic Church. It was widespread and there are real victims and um, they do deserve to be heard. So, um, so as I said, my research really didn't find an answer to that question. Mm. In working through the book, one of the payoffs for me as a reader was that it raises a lot of questions. So you might read a section and you think, oh, gosh, this, this, there's some, this raises this question, this raises that question. And I imagine some more work could come out of books like this. People could go off and find their own research topics based upon some of the questions. And I wanted to ask for your views on a couple of those. One of the points that's made in the statistics from these inquiries is a fair amount of the abuse that was reported about in Ireland occurred between 1914 and the year 2000, and since then there's been less. So it's, it has a historic element to it. Mm-hmm. One thing that um, I've often thought about there as from a, as a theological question is it does it? It's almost as though the church was was saying, well. Yes, things weren't historically reported in the past, so bishops might have been more concerned about the church's um, image or to avoid scandal rather than to report this, and that was kind of a might have been a consistent view across the the society itself. But then now that's changed, and I wonder what that says about 
who leads who? Does the church lead the society or does the society lead the church ultimately? Wow. Uh, okay, well, the first point I'd make before I get back to your question, in relation to the Australian inquiry, for instance, 90% of the allegations made to the Catholic Church in Australia were made um, in many cases decades after the alleged abuse happened. So the Catholic Church really didn't know that abuse was occurring in many instances, um, which is not to deny that they could have put in safeguarding measures to um, prevent abuse from occurring. But getting back to your question, well, I, I, think, the, I think the answer to your question should be <laughs> that the church and people work together Historically, the church has had too much power, I guess many people would say, and there's, there have been resentments regarding that. Um, certainly has less power now. Um, another aspect of that question might be this new secular move away from the influence of the church. Where does it ultimately lead? Are we throwing out the baby with the bathwater? I mean, there are... <laughs> good moral teachings that come with the church, uh, spirituality, charitable works. Um, so I think the church as an institution these days, um, for many people, uh, has a negative, leaves a negative impression. Um, but in answer to your question, I would say people in church should work together, but um, I'm not sure. What, what do you think? Well, my feeling was that the that from reading the the book was it's almost as though the if once the the church will you know in a, will the the people of the church will bring with them the societal norms into the into the church building and that will have an effect on the way in which the, the church hierarchy has to deal with them because if the, if the hierarchy wants to have the respect of the members they need to sort of at least reflect the common understanding of members on various questions. And I was going to ask then about this is one of the one of the parts of, of, of being a, a Catholic priest, it seems to me, is there's a sort of mystery about a Catholic priest and you see it in movies a lot in sort of those exorcism horror movies and things the priest walks in with the mysterious black bag and does all this other stuff. So there's this whole sense of mystery and it seemed a little bit, strange to me that the the priest could the church could say this the, here's a man who every day does this thing on an altar that has that creates a metaphysical event some sort of event but then at the same time they were abusive and i sort of think people think you must have to have a cognitive dissonance between those two facts because it doesn't seem one if you if you had the power to do that how you could ever think to do something else that was really criminal to a child yeah to, to begin with um I'd like to say it was the minority of priests who are abusing children. So the idea that most priests uh, have this double life is, is not true as far as the figures we have, which we have to work with. Um, yeah, and certain, maybe that did have to change, right, that mystique, and we did have to grow into an understanding that priests are actually normal people like you and I, um, they administer the sacraments, which separates them from uh, lay church members, but they still have the same temptations that uh, ordinary people do. Um, they're still deserving uh, to be reintegrated after sometimes making mistakes too. Um, here I'm not so much talking about child sex abuse, but in my re research I found out that uh, you know, there's a the number of priests who break their vow of celibacy, not necessarily with children, but with adult women. Um, and they return to celibacy and talk about it as a lifelong journey, maybe in a way that a, you know, one party in a married couple might have an affair and they come back together. Um, and that happens in the priesthood. And, uh, yeah, I think it was true. There was maybe a very unhealthy view of priests, that they were mysterious, they were in possession of greater moral fortitude than uh, your average person, 
and they were immune to moral failings. Um, can the world accept that, though, <laughs> might mm. be another question. Yeah, with the world accepting it, I mean, I just realised when you were giving that answer, then I I sort of walked into the um, – or, or t- took up the point which you go to great lengths to dispel, but it just shows how powerful it is that it it was a minority. But I the, the comment, the question I was said then was almost as though every other priest does this. Um, how – that seems to me to be something that is going to remain over the church for a long time, that they will now be – distrusted people how how do you think one one why do you think this the is that just the, a consequence of the way the story was reported or is there something else to that why why is there this perception that there is this institution in our midst that is just full of of these like the weasels in toad hall just full well i think a lot of it's due to due to um misreporting in the media so there's been enormous reputational damage to the church, as you rightly say. Um, that's evident in reduction of uh, people enrolling their kids at Catholic schools um, and a general distrust of priests and this is the thought that um, contemporary priests are likely to be abusers when they're... Um, I, I think the figures of uh, child sex abuse in the Catholic church are... Uh, figures of known predators are pretty much the same as in other communities, so school principals or what have you. Um, So there's nothing special about the Catholic church or Catholic priests which makes them more prone to be child sex abusers. However, historically, um, they have been associated with um, agencies which deal with children. And, of course, whenever you have vulnerable people there's going to be abuse. Um, we know that now. Uh, sure, yeah, the reputational damage is huge, and I think that's mainly to do with um, not only media m- misreporting, and, and also I must stress here there was some accurate reporting in the media. I generalise quite a bit when I talk about the media. Mm-hmm. But also the inquiries themselves, the inquiries had um, released um they had their own media departments. They released um, statements to the media, which were somewhat misleading. And on that point, I have some sympathy with reporters. I read an, um, an interview with a reporter of the New York Times who wrote a report on the Philadelphia report based on uh, an executive summary from the inquiry. And he said when he he took the time to actually read the report, which was multiple volumes. He was horrified because he thought the executive summary was very biased. And he said, look, I mean, any news reporter works on the the briefs that are given to them. You know, the news is a very fast-paced industry. They don't have time to read multiple volumes. Uh, So I think I think there was misinformation from the inquiries or a bias and certainly in the media as well. Mm. The One of the parts of the book concerns the punishments that the church can impose on priests for engaging in this type of conduct. And there's a thing called being lasized and then some were sent to treatment and sometimes it was dealt with as a moral issue, not necessarily as a criminal issue. Could you discuss the ways in which the church could deal with an individual priest internally and what that, what something like being lasized means? Okay, well, the first thing to point out here is that, um, that the church works in concert with, with state laws. In many of these cases, there wasn't enough evidence. These, this is in terms of particularly contemporary cases where somebody complained around the time that the priest was allegedly abusing a child. Um, as you would know, I guess, being a lawyer, um, it's, it is, it was <laughs> very hard to find evidence to um, have somebody prosecuted for child sex abuse. It wasn't a lot of corroborate, there's often not a lot of corroborating evidence. It's difficult when you're dealing with children witnesses um, who don't necessarily want to come forth. But the church so there were cases 
historically when the police said to the church, we think Father so-and-so is an abuser, but we don't have enough evidence to put him in prison. And the church had to deal with this priest. Um, they often uh, spent a lot of money on, on treatment and were often, often cases they were misled by treatment centres and psychologists who said, look, Father Ted's been through this process and the chance of him reoffending is very low, and that wasn't the case um, for many of these guys. Another thing that the, the church does, um, which is quite interesting, is with some of these offenders, they assign them to monasteries uh, um, where they're essentially locked in a monastery and monitored day and night. And that's obviously a very costly process. Um, you know, the church are not jailers, they're not investigators, so they obviously don't do this very well. <laughs> um, now, with being laicized or defrocked, a punishment that's open to the church is to remove um, the orders of the priesthood from the person so they can no longer be a priest. Now, there's a couple of ways of looking at this or a few ways of looking at it. Um, I would suggest the best thing is, is to have a priest defrocked if he has a history of child sex abuse because, um, and as you said before, there is an element of trust that we had or we have or had um, with somebody in a high moral role as a priest. And if he's known to have had a serious criminal defect, um, I, I don't think that impression should be given to parents or children. However, the downside of that is that person is then released from the care of the church and goes back into the broader community and the church loses its power to monitor, monitor um, the offender or alleged offender. Uh, or to pay for, for treatment. So there's um, the church did take the position, although I believe it's less likely to now, it's become very risk adverse in this area, did believe that uh, they had to hold on to these people as priests and treat them and monitor them. Mm. Um. And the, with that concept of holding on to them, if someone was a priest and they wanted to leave, it seems to me it would be quite difficult to just leave because, I don't know, I don't imagine they get paid much and what would they, where would they live, all that type of thing. Does the church, do you know if the church has a way of dealing with priests who want to leave, who say, look, I've got a problem, I can't deal with it anymore, I shouldn't be a priest, I've got to go? Do they have a welfare arm that helps people, like like a prisoner coming out of jail, that helps them be re-established in the community? Um, in answer to that question, uh, different dioceses work in different ways. Okay, um, for instance, um, most people don't know different countries, different dioceses pay priests different amounts of money. Um, so, for instance. In some dioceses in the US, it's, they've foreseen not only the case of um, priests being defrocked, but priests leaving the church for other reasons. Um, they don't want to be a priest anymore. Um, they're left in very difficult financial situations. Um, however, and this is somewhat of an ignorant answer, I'm sorry, um, I would imagine that in large part there isn't a lot of... Um, welfare or an exit strategy for mm. um, priests who no longer want to um, remain in the priesthood. I see. And there are now lots of safeguards. I think all of the studies you refer to, each of the, the churches in those dioceses, whatever they're called, um, have different guidelines to deal with, deal with looking after children. And one do you did you get a sense of the of how much that was driven by things like insurers because there were massive payouts for these for all the claims at least of damages for lots of these events and we've heard in the news dioceses in America going bankrupt the Jesuits I think on the east coast or something like that and I wonder how much of, of this 
safeguarding has actually been driven by insurance companies saying, if you want insurance, you must do this, that and the other. Did you get any sense of that? I think that that's certainly an aspect of it. However, I mean, we're now in a situation in Australia with the redress scheme that insurance companies won't cover those redress payouts because the uh, um, the balance of probabilities is too low for them. Um, but I also will say in the church's defence, um, you know, most members in the hierarchy of the church or church members don't want child sex abuse in their churches and in their communities. So it's, it may be a bit cynical to suggest that these mechanisms were solely put in place um, for insurance measures. I, I mean, I, I do believe that was a factor, but maybe it was a significant factor. But I also think that um, the church did and still does want to address this problem um, because it doesn't want to have child abusers in its midst. It, it wants to be an institution of charity and grace and love, and, and obviously child sexual abuse is antithetical to all of that. Um, so I, I think, you know, the answer to most of these questions is, is multifaceted, mm. isn't it? It's, it's usually, you know, the answers aren't solely driven by one motivation, particularly when you're talking about you know, different contexts, different countries over different times as well. Yeah, I think that's one 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 difficulty with media reporting in, in short news stories is that you almost have to just have the one side and the other and that's it. You can't have any of that nuance. One quick, I want to ask you about in the book, you refer that some measures that were put in place, you go in Ireland and you go through a timeline and one of these would seem to have a bigger bigger application to the church. In 1962, Pope John XXIII issued a special procedural law for processing cases of priests who engage in soliciting sex, and take it from adults, in the sacrament of confession. The document required secrecy from all church officials involved, priests, witnesses, and complainants who breached the secrecy clause were automatically excommunicated. Now, um, I take it there's a fair bit of that that relates to the times, 1962, but also it seems as though this is a problem. That, that, like why would you even think you would need this law in 1962? It shows that there was a – at some level this there were – sexual misconduct was severe enough that the Pope himself had to put out this special procedural law. Could you comment on the, the sort of backstory to that? Yeah, look, that's an interesting question and obviously – there was a knowledge of child sex abuse and sexual abuse in the church. And particularly, you have to remember, the Vatican is, is the central head office, so to speak, um, has a good understanding of what's happening across the world. Um, that said, I, I still hold to the figures in these inquiries that the delay in the reports of most of these allegations is, I think the average is about 25, 30 years. In terms of the, the secrecy um, uh, clause, uh, which has been criticised by many people, and, and yet again, rightly so, um, I think there was further aspects to that as well. I mean, obviously, the church, the criticism that the church was overly concerned about its reputation at the expense of um, justice to victims of abuse is um, is a warranted criticism. And... Uh, I mean, I don't believe you're talking about pendulum swinging. Uh, now the church uh, seems to be divested of any interest in protecting its reputation. I mean, I think that's a poor turn of events. But there is another aspect with that, um, which um, I've read, that the church uh, felt that the church is the organ of salvation was such an important entity that to have this pure reputation uh, was paramount and it was decided that anything that uh, interrupted or challenged that, um, that image had to be uh, silenced so that people wouldn't lose faith in the church. 
Um, now, of course, the problem with that <laughs> is that you have victims who don't receive justice. Um, you have victims who are unfairly treated, who are silenced, who are not believed by the bright by the broader community and police because the image is that a priest can never do wrong and we know that's not the case now. Um, uh, so I don't think it was the, the right thing to do. But um, I, I also think there were, were different reasons for, there were a range of reasons for having that, that requirement of secrecy, although rightly so it, it has been condemned. It's... Mm. With the secrecy aspect in the Australian experience, a couple of years ago now there was a lot of commentary about the seal of confession, that what's said in confession cannot be revealed by the priest and priests would go to jail rather than reveal what was said to them in confession. Although I'm not, I'm not sure how many child sex offenders turn up to, conf to confess their, to a priest that they've committed this crime. Leaving that aside, the book makes two points. Um, the Crimes Act in New South Wales and Victoria are referred to because it actually places obligations on a person who learns of a serious indictable offence, which would include child sexual abuse, to have to report that. So the person who learns of the news, if they don't report that, themselves commits a crime. And secondly, there was the there was discussion about the obligation to remove the legal privilege given to priests to be able to hold on to what's told to them in confession if it involves a confession of child sexual abuse. Um, could you comment on the on on those aspects of the response to the inquiry in Australia? Well, a number of priests who spoke to the inquiry, and I know this isn't actually this isn't really the question you're asking, said that within thirty years of hearing confessions, they'd never heard a priest confess to child sex abuse. Now, when we talk about seal of confession, there's a there's a number of aspects, number of things that can happen in the confessional. One, a child can confess, not, sorry, rather, um, a child can uh, tell the priest they've been abused. Now, this is not a confession, and a priest in this case could go to the police and um, with the child, and there's no problems with the seal of confession. Um, I mean, there can be abuse in the confessional, um, more involving grooming aspects. Um, and then the other aspect you were talking about, an offender actually admitting to abuse in um, confessional. Well, in the Australian context, apparently that is a very rare event. I didn't hear of any um, priests, well, at least admitting to it. <laughs> Just because they say it didn't happen doesn't mean it didn't, we know now. Um, uh, However, I mean, there is a number of aspects to that. One is a confessional is anonymous entity. Um, often there's a not a significant information that a priest could take to the, to the police. Uh, many of the priests in the inquiry said that if, if somebody had confessed to them, they would have withheld absolution and told, told the person making the confession, they had to go to the police before they would give them confession so they would remain in a state of sin. Um, I think a problem with the Australian inquiry is it didn't balance uh, the benefits of the sacrament and that um, the laws that were put in place potentially um could damage the sacrament. I mean, we're talking about child sex abuse. What about other things, um, other crimes that are uh, confessed in the confession? Or, or not even crimes. What about other moral failings? Um, should a priest go to a woman and tell her that her husband's having an affair? That's not a crime. Right? Mm. Um, I, something that isn't talked about a lot is this thing called the, a reserve penalty. So the Vatican, actually, the Catholic Church does have a process where a priest can break the seal of confession. Upon breaking the seal of confession, they are excommunicated, but a senior uh, bishop um, 
maybe it would have to be somebody along the lines of the Pope, I'm not sure I can't remember, um, would have the power to reintegrate them and to overrule that. Now, obviously, if you're a priest, that sounds quite extreme and you don't want to go down that um, route, and I, I believe it hasn't been used much. But it is an avenue to explore, I think, um, in terms of um, legislation that's come about through the seal of confession now. Because the, the, the practical problem with this is that priests just won't hear confessions anymore. And an, another practical problem with this inquiry is priests, if they can get away with it, don't want to have anything to do with children. So um, so I think something that was lost in, in this conversation was that there are some benefits that come out of the sacrament of confession. And I'm not sure if these inquiries have uh, proven that there was enough evidence that there was a wide-scale problem uh, with confessions of child sex, uh, sex abuse and seal of confession confession to um to damage the sacrament mm-hmm. yeah in a way what you said then make helps me get better sense out of the 1962 rule that was made because it was almost a way of saying well this is between these two adults and there has to be some way to to vent this if necessary and here's a process everyone can use and you're not going to get excommunicated so it could have actually and no one can blackmail the other that type of thing it seemed a, a relatively good rule in that sense, in Australia, there is one man's name who everyone in this country will, will know probably for the next generation, Cardinal Pell. And Cardinal Pell was tried, was revealed to the public only after he was found guilty. In the first instance hearing, he went to the appeal court in Victoria, was unsuccessful in the high, was successful in the high court. And from the judgment itself, it seems as though the evidence against Cardinal Pell was never very, didn't seem to be overly compelling. Um, it didn't seem to be the sort of perfect case if you were the, if you're, if you're a criminal prosecutor and you want to bring down a cardinal in the Catholic Church, that might be worth doing. But if you're going to do it, you'd probably want to have a bit better evidence than these people had. Nonetheless, they ran it. Do you think part of the case against Cardinal Pell arose not so much from this reported incident, but he had become the person everyone could hate when it came to the Catholic Church in Australia. That was the way he was portrayed in the media. Well, not only in the media, there's a lot of Catholics, <laughs> particularly liberal and progressive Catholics who don't really like George Pell. Um, in Australia, I mean, I, I'd add here in, in Italy, although they, they yeah. love what he's doing, um, fighting corruption in the Vatican, but that's a, a separate story. Um I don't know what the motivation was. Uh, was it a case that there was an extreme moral panic? Um, I mean, George Pell had had other allegations against him in the past. If we're going to play devil's advocate, um, could the police have been well-intentioned and thought he must be a predator and... Uh, um, I'm not. I'm not sure of the motivations. I, I don't want to assign um, motivations or intentions to people that I that aren't true. What I do know, though, is the police operation was very odd. As you know from the outset, they advertised for complaints against George Pell when uh, none had been made. Um, this was closely connected with uh, Broken Rights, the victim lobby group, advocate group, and the allegation um, that made its that um, the, the, the damage to George Pell, as you said, it um, it wasn't very compelling from the beginning. I mean, the beginning, the, the first thing he said was that it was another priest who abused him. And he, then he later said, no, it was George Pell. Uh, he gave a statement of the room, uh, the vestry, where he was said to be abused. Um, the, the, the statement was of the room after it had been renovated, <laughs> the second statement. 
strangely enough, had the room prior to the renovation. And, you know, that the knockout blow is that on the evidence that was given by this person, the witness, it was actually impossible because the police and the prosecution confused the time it took to actually uh, process out of the church and back to the vestry. So it, it was very odd that it made it as far as it did and that some people still believe that um, George Pell abuses witness. Now, what I would also add to this, which may be a contentious element, is I find it rather concerning on the balance of evidence that um, there's a reluctance to say that uh, the victim, the alleged victim, sorry, uh, most likely lied in this instance, right? We had Dan Andrews come out and say, you know, I, I don't want to say anything about the Pell case, but I am going to say that um, victims, I see you, I hear you, and I'm on your side. Uh, well, in this case, there's a stronger possibility that it was a false allegation for whatever reason, okay, um, uh, which is a conversation that we're not having. <laughs> mm. There have been a number of proven false allegations overseas. I, I have in my book um, mm. a guy who made a false, very serious false allegation against an Irish priest. He admitted in the high court that he'd lied. His motivation was to get a compensation payment. Interestingly, his parents also admitted to lying to help him out with his compensation case, and they gave corroborating evidence. There's a case in the US of um, a guy on a tele jail telephone being recorded saying that he was going to pretend he was a victim to get a compensation payout. So I think an uncomfortable outcome of these inquiries is the understanding that particularly historically, people who made allegations about child sex abuse were generally not believed. And a lot of people who were abused were uh, obviously affected by that. However, we now seem to be in a place where we can't, we can't entertain the thought that there are actually false allegations for a number of reasons, and there are even intentional false allegations, not misunderstandings and um, not false allegations that are a product of... Um, confused, recovered, repressed memories, what have you. Mm. And I think with, um, with the George Pell case as well, is like your view on this, before this whole recent court case came about, Cardinal Pell was criticised or was in the media for a couple of reasons. One was I think he was a priest of Ballarat when there was a – when and there had been a famous priest abuser back there, so there was a sort of suspicion you you, you might not have done anything but you, you must have known, so why didn't you report this or something or other. And then there were other cases where there, were, there was a, a famous family who got some media coverage where I think their child might have died, but they, they were given very little – the compensation offer was very little, and that was in the days when the church would often rely on limitation of actions. And the well, the question there is, I can understand from running an institution, you would take a, a, a legalistic view because you have to, that's a sort of how corporations might run. But that was almost the sort of the tragedy of being a church is you can't have a, you've got to have it both ways, but in some sense you can't because the church is meant to be this merciful place where of course you hit, you don't care about the fine the, the fineness of limitation of actions you just do what's right not what's legal how did you think that's been one of the mistakes or one of the, mis the mishandling of this by the church is they're being legalistic not moral or they're perceived as doing that well i think there's also another aspect to that that um that priests bond with each other <laughs> Um, in some cases, they're very clicky groups. 
they are more inclined to protect each other. Um, and in some cases, we heard archbishops give evidence. Roger Herth, the Anglican Archbishop of um, Perth, when he was in the inquiry, but of Newcastle, with the cases that arose, um, said he had such a high view of the priesthood, he couldn't even conceive of the thought of a priest being a child sex abuser. Um, so there is an aspect of a priest looking after priests for whatever reason that is. And the other side of that, um, unfortunately, has been a very aggressive approach to people who have rightly sought um, compensation um, or not even compensation, who've uh, wanted a priest to be defrocked or have just wanted the church to admit that something happened and wanted an apology and, as you said, wanted a pastoral approach, right? So it's true that oftentimes... Um, victims would go to the church and it would become very legalistic and they'd meet with tribunals and they'd meet with uh, lawyers and they wanted to have a pastoral experience. And, um, and that was a, a considerable failing of the church uh, in the past. I'm not sure what the experience is for victims these days. I imagine it's better. But... Um, I mean, another aspect of that, from what I hear, is, uh, you know, George Pell is a tough character. And when you're fighting corruption in the Vatican, that's a benefit. Maybe when you're dealing with the family yeah. <laughs> about child <laughs> sex abuse, um, that same character trait is, is not ideal, right? Um, I understand he's a compassionate person, but let's make no mistake that, you know, Bishops and archbishops, uh, you know, these are disciplinary roles, right? And um, they're tough roles. So uh, true that the church took a very aggressive approach to people who reported abuse, and there's clear evidence that um, uh, they didn't want to know about it and considered people who were making complaints to be troublemakers, considered them to be the enemy, um, and still kept a somewhat high view of priests. In regards to Ridsdale, who was a priest at Ballarat, however, um, something people need to know is that clerical residential homes are very large entities. I stayed in one when I was doing my research in Rome. Um, I mean, I would have had no idea what anybody was doing there. It's... Uh, People have their private space. People come and go all the time, um, and they are big entities. And something I find interesting about the Pell case is that there's an assumption that George Pell knew that Ridsdale was an abuser, whereas you have Paul Bongiorno, who was actually living in the residential home, who was considered not to know, and that is uh, despite the fact that a victim of Ridsdale gave evidence to the Australian Royal Commission that he told Paul Bongiorno that Ridsdale was an abuser and Paul Bongiorno had responded, we know that and we're trying to do something about it. So the Royal Commission came to the conclusion, oddly enough, because um, this wasn't usually the case of the Royal Commission, that in that instance the witness was actually not telling the truth, <laughs> mm. and Paul Bongiorno um, wasn't told. So there's a real sense of um, a bias in these inquiries and target people, which may go back to your previous comment, your previous question, sorry, was Pell a target person? And um, I don't know, but I... The evidence may seem to suggest, the evidence being the, the police advertising for um, allegations, that yes is the answer. Mm. Um, one final question about the, the, the book is the Australian inquiry wasn't just into the Catholic Church. It was a royal commission into, I think, just sexual abuse 
and it covered other institutions. Do you think the the intense focus on the Catholic Church, uh, perhaps over other institutions who were also examined, there is going to be a detriment because some of those other institutions might not be have the same protective levels as the church now has? Or do you think the scrutiny placed on the Catholic Church will be a lesson for all of those institutions that were present at that Royal Commission? Look, I think being a, uh, answering this question objectively, the, the Catholic Church had to be, the, you know, as it became the focus of that inquiry, because so many of the allegations in the original private sessions um, were focused on religious institutions and particularly the Catholic Church. I mean, I believe the Catholic Church is the only institution to have its own book in the final report. And that has to be acknowledged. Um, however, there were other, it, it could be said that there are other institutions that were let off lightly. I, I mean, I think some people have argued that uh, you know, the school system didn't feature <laughs> prominently in the inquiry and you expect a lot of abuse to have occurred there. Foster care didn't feature strongly, um, we would expect there to be a lot of abuse in foster care. So I think there are still some areas, and I think foster care is one of them, um, where there's potential for abuse still to be happening without significant safeguards, although, I'm, look, I don't know, so I, I, I should reserve judgment there. However, I, I, I do agree with you that uh, in light of um, the prominence of these inquiries and, and the, the shifting face of, of Australians and their view of sexual harassment, sexual abuse, that most institutions now would have very good safeguarding, most major institutions where there is a risk of sexual abuse, sexual harassment, would have good safeguarding measures. Because because of these inquiries, and I I think I mean I'm somewhat critical of these inquiries, but that is a good thing that that's come out of the inquiries. Okay. Um, now, could you, if there's anything else you'd like to say about the the book, please say that. And could you also let the audience know what you're working on next? I think we've covered everything. <laughs> um, at the moment, I'm I, I'm looking at euthanasia and religious freedom and I mean the idea of uh, the church and the versus the secular world and um, how the church needs to uh, how, how the church needs to relate in this modern world to changes in the modern world so that's my next project but I'm, I'm in the very early stages so right so this well, this book wasn't controversial enough then euthanasia now Anyhow, no, I look forward to that. Um, it, it, it was a this book was very interesting. As I said, it leads people to a lot more thoughts about these areas, and so was the last book on ecumenicalism. And I'm sure the next book will be worth reading as well. So, thank you very much, Virginia, for making yourself available today. It's nice to speak to you again. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a nice chat. Thank you. <laughs>